0: Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondrachek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Well, January 1st, it's a new year. It's a holiday. There's actually another holiday that is on January 1st. Um, it's, a, it's a church holiday, in fact. You maybe don't know about it, but it's a, it's a church holiday. Um, it is National Ask the Associate Pastor to Preach Sunday. Uh, so welcome to uh, that special day of the church calendar. Now I don't have an associate pastor to ask. Uh, I felt guilty asking Howard, so I didn't. He's not even here. So uh, so that's <laughs> that's how it's going down. Um, but the week after Christmas, the week after Christmas is the um, is the least attended Sunday uh, across most churches, the least a- attended Sunday of the year. Now you have that happen on New Year's Day. And you've basically got this holy cross of, of, low attendance. And, um, and that's just the way it is. It's, it's predictable. You expect it. It's, it happens all the time. And so with that in mind, I've named the message for this Sunday. Is anyone listening? Because it kind of feels like that. Is anyone listening? Is there anyone here who's talking to other pastors, you know, months ago about, you know, what are you going to do on on New Year's Day? What are you going to preach? And they're like, I'm going to preach what I did four years ago, right? Like, it's just like, what do you, what do you do? Well, this is the title, but that's not what we're getting at. That's not at all what we're getting at. Um, We're going to explore today the silence of God. How do we make sense of the silence of God? When we pray, when we read, when we engage in worship, and it, and it feels like this. Is anyone listening? Is anyone up there? Are our un, we're going we're to try to make sense of it, if that's even possible. Maybe that's the wrong statement to even think about. Is there a way to make sense of God's silence? Are unanswered prayers a punishment Are they, is there a problem with you that God's not listening to you? Or is there something on the other end where your, you know, antenna is is messed up, the wires are crossed? Does, Does God's silence undercut his claimed nature of being loving and omnipresent? Or perhaps is the silence of God in the seasons of God's silence, An intentional time that is not to be wasted. Could the silence of God actually be a catalyst for spiritual growth? Is it not wasted time, but extremely valuable time where we can learn and grow in ways that we can't when it feels like Jesus is alive and active in our lives, where it feels like everything that we say is heard? Well, I'm going to argue <laughs> for the latter. Um, but before we get into, we're going to look at a few metaphors and, and, and scripture texts in order to make sense of this to the best that we can. Um, but I want to be transparent about an, assum- an underlying assumption that, that comes with this entire message. And, and it's a, a bit of a doozy, uh, but I think we need to accept it. Here, here's my underlying assumption here. Bring it up. I don't have it memorized. Bring it up. <laughs> the Bible's claims of truth are trustworthy. Trustworthy. A doozy, right? And you might say, no, not really, but isn't that kind of underneath all of it? Well, yes, but here's the thing. During times of God's silence, sometimes this promise, eh, do we believe it? Sometimes we can struggle to believe this. Times of God's silence can sometimes undercut this belief that God's word is trustworthy, that God himself is trustworthy, But here's the thing, I believe this when the sun is out, so I'm gonna believe it when the clouds are out. I believe this in the light, so I'll believe it in the darkness, and I believe this when God is alive in my heart and when he's silent. So this is an underlying assumption, which is important because it means that that we can trust in God's promises, like this one from Deuteronomy where God says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. On the cross, Jesus endured complete forsakenness from the Father so that you wouldn't have to. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, why, God, have you forsaken me? And in that moment, in that time on the cross, Jesus experienced not just silence, but absence. And there's a big difference there. There's a difference between absence and silence. You do not know the absence of God. Not a single person alive, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you, you, you don't know the absence of God. But Jesus did. On the cross, he knew the absence of God so that you would never have to for as long as you live. So perhaps the most simple and honest question that, that we can ask as a part of this message and as a good starting point for us is, is why? And an honest question demands and is, is, deserves an, an honest answer. Now throughout this message, the mystery of God will hang over, over all of it, but there are ways to better understand God's silence and to reframe this Common, universal experience as Christians in a way that helps us see this as an opportunity for growth rather than despair. And and so we're going to look at it through three perspectives. And here here are the three here. We're going to talk about riding a bike, object permanence, and selfless love. So let's start at the top, riding a bike, okay? So um, uh, this summer, my, um, my son, Ford, um, he's, he's, uh, now he's four. He was three at the time. But uh, he was learning to ride a bike, transitioning from a, a balance bike to a, to a pedal bike. And, um, and like with most, ki- most kids, it, it took a little effort. And so um, my wife and I, we have two very different ways of going about solving problems. Uh, for her, um, she is an information gatherer. Right. If you're an informant, you, you should just like give me all the information. I need to know everything before I, I take this, the, the, the first step, which to me is a curse because you can never know everything. And so, so I'm not like that. I'm more of, let's just do it and then we'll figure it out as we go. You know, like I don't even know what I don't know, but I'll find out as, as we go. Okay, so that's me. I, so I'm in charge of, of helping Ford. And so I'm doing what most people do. And I'm, let's see how good the camera work is today. Uh, I, I'm, I'm walking or I'm running next to Ford with my hand on his back and I'm right next to him, and we're going, and we're going. And, and, but he's really struggling to, like, like, he doesn't want me to let go. And, and we're not getting anywhere, really. And so finally, Leah's like, no, you're doing it wrong. She said, I, I, you know, again, she's looked all this stuff up. And so, so she's like, what you have to do is you got to put your hand on, on the seat, not on him, and you have, to, uh, you have to run behind him. So you actually need to, need to be doing this. And he hated it. Because he can't see me, right? My hands on the back of his seat. he can't see me, he can't feel me, and, and he, he quit a few times. Like, it, it wasn't, at first, it wasn't going very well, because he couldn't see me. When my son could not see his father, he didn't feel safe. And so it is sometimes with us, in our own faith relationships, or our own faith in Christ, The lesson was that as long as he could see and feel me, he would remain dependent on my supervision. Now, it was a process, but he could only learn to ride his bike when he could no longer see me or feel me even while I was close to him. Reducing our dependence on the supervision of God is a spiritual process, just like riding a bike is a physical process. Parental love requires that, and as parents, you kind of know this, it requires that you um, let your kids go a little bit sometimes. Not too far, right? There are limits. Like you, you ride your bike and there's a, if I see Ford going down the, the driveway and there's a car coming, right? I'm not gonna be like, well, here's where he learns to look both ways. No, I'm gonna step in. I'm going to step in. I am there. I am always present. I'm with him. I'm usually in arms reach away but I'm gonna let him kind of try these things out because in silence, sometimes God isn't leaving you, he's letting you. Just like God let the, or Jesus let the disciples during his, his ministry time, during his three years as, as a rabbi in the teachings that we have in, in scripture, um, at, at one point or at a couple different times, in fact, um, he let his disciples go and they go out and they, and, they, and they have this opportunity to engage in real life ministry in the real world. And, and they don't have Jesus there over his shoulder, they have his spirit, they're not alone, but they don't have the person of Jesus right there with them. And so they go out and they do their thing, and eventually they all come back and they report what happened. And for some of them, they're like, my goodness, I saw God work in amazing ways. And others, they said, I need a little more supervision, right? I need a little bit more help, more direction, more teaching, more guidance. And both are great. Both are are great results, and both represent spiritual maturing. A parent will tell you that letting that their child start to grow and grow in that independence, which everyone wants, but it's hard to, to let them get there. It is such a painful experience for kids and for parents. It's hard, but it does help us all grow. And it can be both, both, both hard and an opportunity for growth. So that's the perspective of a kid riding a bike. Now, let's kind of change gears a little bit. No pun intended. Uh, I want to think about it from another perspective. I want to think about it from the perspective of of object permanence. Okay. Now, if you don't know what object permanence is, I'll teach you. Um, I want everyone here to close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. Sound booth, close your eyes. Good, okay, open them again. You all have object permanence because not a single one of you freaked out that everyone and everything in the world was gone. You have object permanence. And you know what? So so object permanence is the ability to know that things exist when you can't see them. Okay, and and that's actually learned. You did not. You were not born with object permanence. You learned it in the first few months of life. Every child or, or infant learns object permanence because over time you learn that objects exist even when you can't see them. Now to bring my wife up again, she, she uh, before before we knew each other even, she lived in Germany, and and uh, I had the opportunity to. to Uh, go there before we had kids and and see everything everywhere where she used to live. And and, um, she lived in a place called Cologne, Germany. That's not how you say it. That's how English speakers say it. But anyway, that's where she lived. And, and in the basement, in that city, there's, there's a dark basement in that city where they found a poem, an inscription on, on the wall from 1945. It was written by a Jew who was hiding from the Gestapo. And on, and, and the, the poem goes like this. It says, I believe in the sun even when it isn't shining. I believe in love even when I am alone. I believe in God even when he is silent. think sometimes we miss in Scripture as we read the passage of time. I don't think we are able to fully appreciate the passage of time in Scripture unless we really intentionally uh, look for it. Now being New Year's Day, some of you, maybe you're, you're, you've got like a goal or a resolution, you're going to read through the Bible in a year or, or whatever, and you start, you know, you start Genesis 1-1 today, uh, but you know, as you read, then that's a fantastic way of kind of understanding the larger story of Scripture, uh, but as we read, sometimes it's just, like sometimes you flip a page and you flipped like 400 years. And that's just how it works. You read and things go so quickly and you don't appreciate the time that took place within that story. And that includes the time that sometimes exists between God making a promise and God fulfilling that promise. Many of us, we don't know, some of, I I shouldn't imply, but like some of us, do we have that kind of fortitude to pray day after day for weeks, for months, for years, for the same thing over and over again. Do we have that kind of perseverance to continue to wait on God between the time that a a promise is made versus a time that the promise is fulfilled? Take, for example, the Israelites. They're taken into captivity. They're in captivity in Egypt for 430 years. For 430 years, they cried out to God to set them free. To bring them back to the land that God, had prom- that God was about to promise them. To, to, to bring them to that place for 430 years. Imagine passing that faith down from generation to generation. You speak to your child and you say, We believe in this God. We believe that He will rescue us. And we ask you to join in this prayer as you have prayed, as your father and your father's father and his 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 father and father have all prayed. And we've gotten no answer, but continue to pray that God would fulfill this promise. That's a hard sell. That's a challenge. There are peop- There were thousands of people, dozens of generations that came and went without seeing the fulfillment of that promise in this, in this time of God's silence. But then after 430 years, God said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them. We expect things to happen fast. We just do. And our expectation for speed is only growing. Waiting is a modern tragedy. We gather around and share stories to a captive audience about a package that took a week to arrive. We share stories with a captive audience of layovers, of how it took three days to get to the other side of the world. Waiting is a modern tragedy, and life is only getting faster. And it's not going to probably change. Life will continue to speed up. Expectations and and the ability to wait will continue to slide. And I think that, like, again, I don't think we're going to change that. But just to recognize the effects of that, I think it does make it challenging for us to trust in the daily promises of God. Uh, Here, Eugene Peterson says it really, like, better than I can, so I'll just quote him. He says, this seemingly unending stretch of the experience of the absence of God is reproduced in most of our lives, and most of us don't know what to make of it. The story in which God does his saving work arises among a people whose primary experience of God is his absence. Personally, I would change absence to silence, but you get the point. That throughout scripture, so much of scripture is a season of, is, is waiting. I mean, we just got out of that with, with Advent. It's a season of waiting. The Old Testament is a, is a story of waiting. And now the New Testament and, the, and, and our lives are a continuation of this waiting for Christ to come. So much of, of life and faith is waiting. And as the person wrote in the dark basement during Nazi Germany, a sign of Christian maturity is when we can continue to believe in God's love even when we don't feel it, and see it. Now, here's the last perspective that we're going to look at. We're going to look at um, at the growth of selfless love. That's going to be this is going to be the last perspective we look at. Now, there's a um, a, a phase that exists. In, um, in a new like a new like in, in dating relationships, it's this, it, it's this phrase. It, it, the phase has always existed, but now it has a phrase, and it's one of those phrases that just makes me so happy that I'm not dating anymore. And, and the, the phrase is this: uh, New relationship energy, okay, NRE. If you want to be hip. NRE, new relationship energy. The new relationship energy is the euphoria that a person experiences at the beginning of a new love relationship. And this is not just some sort of social experience. It's actually a, a biological experience. Uh, when you're in a new love relationship and you have that infatuation with another person, you are, you, your brain chemically changes to the point where you are, you are clinically insane temporarily because of the chemical changes that love has brought upon you. And it's a really great feeling. I remember it from, you know, a decade or or more ago. Um, It's an infatuation with this other person and it feels like a very selfless experience. You love them. Everything is new, and you would do anything for them, even to the point of of looking like a fool in public just just because you love them and and you want to do things for them. However, this phase of infatuation with someone is actually deep down extremely selfish. A lot of the language that that people use when they describe this time, or or you can like, you know, look at lyrics of songs that so often try to kind of capture this this new relationship energy. uh, It's often about us. It's like you love to do those things because it makes you feel good. You want to be with them because it it makes you feel good. Now, I'm not saying we have, like, I'm not trying to revise the whole dating, like how this works and fight the chemistry that happens in your brain. That's not my, my point is not to say this is a bad thing, but just to recognize that it's a phase and it's a phase that must pass. It has to pass in order to, for that relationship to move into selfless love. In our love relationship with Christ, there is, nothing, there, there is nothing very selfless or sacrificial in obeying God so long as your obedience brings you benefits. So long as, as the benefits continue to roll in, There's nothing really all that selfless about your obedience. Just as there are times when when God is silent, there are seasons also when, of course, God is amazingly alive. In our lives, where our heart is, is overflowing with His presence, the, you know, the, the, his, 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 uh, um, he, he gives so much to us, and it overflows into the, into the giving to others. Our prayer lives are on fire. You know, you you read, you look forward to wake up each day and read Scripture because it's like going on an adventure with your best friend. It's just such this alive time. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with it with, with that, but are the experiences and perks replacements for your loyalty. Or to ask it in a different way. If all of those good feelings and those benefits and the things that are to your interest were to go away, what would happen to your loyalty? What is your loyalty hitched to? Until faith in Jesus is no longer beneficial, I would argue that we cannot know what it means to actually live by faith, not by sight. Even not by sight of the Lord. When a relationship grows in maturity, it transforms from being selfless or selfish to selfless. Relational and spiritual maturity is a process of recentering from our priorities and preferences to the priorities and preferences of the other. And at times, God may choose to deny our requests or even withdraw a little so that we don't feel Him like we used to. Because as long as the benefits of faith are untested, you can only mature so far. There's a ceiling to it. Sometimes we live by sight and feel of the Lord and his experiences. And we try to jump from mountaintop to mountaintop. We try to jump from the experience of Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. And rather than than really engaging in a selfless, sacrificial faith. But all this said, all this said, I don't want to... With everything that we've talked about today... I want to end by just acknowledging that that we cannot remove the challenge. I cannot remove from you the challenge of God's silence. It is a difficult time. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says that, that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Meaning that when God is silent, it can feel like starvation. It can be so hard during God's silence. And, and I, there's, I'm not trying to take that away. I don't think that's for me to try to remove. I don't think there's any reframing that can take that away because that is just the, the truth and the reality of God's silence. But what I offer today are simply our perspectives. That's all that they are. They are perspectives. Ways of viewing a time that, that I, as, as far as I see, most of us consider Waiting and, and silence is just like this time to get through where we just kind of sit and we wait for everything to kind of change and, and be alive again. But what if, what if God's silence was a catalyst for growth? What if God's silence was not a mistake or a punishment, but actually an opportunity for you to grow? Grow in a way that you can't when God is so alive and active in your heart, where he is not just present, but just in your ears and in your heart, what if that was really the case? I believe, I believe that it is. I do not offer you any cures because sometimes it's not because you have some sort of spiritual sickness. It's these, all of these, they're not fixes because maybe nothing's really wrong. You just might be in a time that is challenging and an opportunity for growth, but do not give up on the hope that God's silence is a sign that he's not there, that he's absent from you, that he's forgotten about you, that his promises that he's made, he can't back up, or maybe he forgot about including you in them. He is with you. But it, may, but it may be that he is with you in the way that a father is with his child, pushing them along with their hand on the seat, always there, but not necessarily felt. Please pray with me. God, you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus knew what that was like. He descended into hell, but really that hell was on earth as he knew what it meant to be separated from the love of God. But Jesus as our hearts and our souls join with his in faith and in trust. We know that that is not an outcome or an experience that is ours that we must share that Jesus has bore that burden for us so that we would have a way, a bridge between us and God the Father. So thank you for that sacrifice that made this possible, that made our opportunity for worship here possible, that make our prayers possible, that make scripture something that is alive in our life. And Jesus, at times when, when those means of worship and glory are not always felt, when it feels like we're just talking to the sky, when we're just reading a a book, a mandatory reading, God, help us to still understand how you are at work. Help us to grow during those times rather than just wait to get through them. Empower us with a selfless faith during these times of your silence. And help us to trust you when the clouds roll over and we don't always see that hand of provision. Because Jesus, when the sun comes back out and when you speak again loudly into our lives, Jesus, what a blessing, what a joy. God, help us to grow through whatever season of life that we're in. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.